Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. For more information and to donate online, go to 3cr.org.au. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Celtic Folk Show is moving to a new time slot. So tune in every Tuesday at 3pm, starting on Feb 18th. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for the first live program for 2020, and we've got lots of things to talk about today. Uh, First up, we're going to have a talk with uh, Dr Peter Job about the... uh, recent passing of a very important fellow, James Dunn, who, uh, if you are across the issues relating to East Timor, you will know that he's a very important person in the advocacy for the East Timorese people. Um, We'll we'll get straight on to it because Dr Peter Joby is right on the phone at the moment, so we'll have a chat. G'day, Peter. How are you? I'm fine. How are you, Annie? Well, James Dunn uh, not only uh, is a, was a great individual, he lived a long life. So he died at 92 on the 31st of January. And uh, you had the uh, lucky uh, um, ability to chat and talk to uh, James uh, about uh, the issue that you actually did your uh, doctorate on, the East Timor- Timorese issues. Can you talk a little bit about why uh, James Dunn was so important uh, to this struggle? James Dunn, more more than any other non-Timorese individual, uh, brought the matter to the attention of the world. Um, Of course, the Timorese people uh, are the authors of their own liberation. Nevertheless, they acknowledged they would not have been able to do that uh, without a strong input from solidarity activists, and prominent among them is James Dunn. Um, he had a connection uh, to East Timor going back to the time when he was consul to, uh, to East Timor uh, from uh, 1961 to 1963. Uh, he made a lot of contacts there, and he got to know the territory. Um, so after which 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 in which in itself is pretty extraordinary isn't it yeah. because i mean he was a um diplomat intelligence officer soldier 
researcher for the parliamentary libraries and a writer. Now, that gives him credentials that uh, generally surpass many activists. That, that's very true, and that's sort of, and that's why his actual academic research and what he put out had so much credibility. Uh, there were many solidarity activists, of course. I was a uh, one myself, even though a relatively minor one. Uh, nevertheless, he came from what we'd call the establishment. He was a diplomat, um, a former intelligence officer in the military, um, and he had very high-level academic uh, qualifications. And uh, and he he was a very serious and dedicated academic. And the quality of his work made it very hard for people to refute the evidence that he brought forward. I I noticed uh, in uh, the obituary that you've written for him uh, that uh, his connection to uh, fighting for the ordinary person within the framework of political uh, and economic uh, um, uh, framework of the world uh, began as a soldier when he was stationed near Hiroshima after the Second World War. That's right. Uh, he's told me a lot about that time. He was 18 years old, uh, and he was sent uh, as uh, one of uh, a small, relatively small delegation of Australian soldiers to Japan after the war, and the first six months he was uh, stationed at Hiroshima. Uh, he's described seeing hundreds of children dying from atomic radiation. Uh, he told me various anecdotes about uh, particular cases that he'd seen, and he said that that put him in the direction of uh, focusing on the importance of ordinary people and human rights uh, in international relations rather than on the importance of governments, to, to understand that when it comes down to it, it's, it's ordinary people that matter. You can talk about uh, international relations and the uh, uh, sort of interactions that governments have, but it's ordinary people that ultimately matter, who pay the price. And his... Uh it's quite extraordinary to read through his uh, what he did uh, from the uh, using the skills that he had, uh, because it reads uh, it, it, it. People should read his life, in fact, and his uh, engagement with this issue, because it exposes governments for what they are, effectively, uh, because his incredibly important work uh, documenting. Uh, the uh, his Dunn report is absolutely pivotal in uh, as an underpinning of international understanding of what the Indonesians and others allowed to happen in East Timor. Well, that's right. The Dunn report came out in 1977. That was just in February 1977, just a little bit after uh, a year after the invasion. Before it came out, there was some information coming in from a variety of service uh, sources that atrocities were happening there and there was an ongoing conflict and that there was starvation. That was coming from the Catholic Church, it was coming from some smuggled letters and it was also coming from a clandestine radio leak uh, that I was involved in for some time myself in the north of Australia between Quetelin and, uh, and Solidarity activists. Uh, but, of course, the Fraser government at that time strongly supported the Sahata regime as they viewed... Uh, relations with the Sahata regime uh, as vital to their foreign policy objectives. Uh, at that stage, they hadn't recognised East Timor as being part of Indonesia, but they were not trying to do, do that. Uh, they certainly wanted to cover up the situation in East Timor 
and to deny the reality of what was happening there. The, but what uh, he did is... Oh, yeah, yeah. sorry, go on. Well, what uh, James Dunn did is that he went to Portugal and interviewed refugees from uh, East Timor. Some of them had managed to leave by West Timor and with the help of the, the Dutch, actually. Uh, and they uh, ended up in Portugal, so he interviewed them. And he found a very consistent pattern uh, of eyewitness accounts uh, of atrocities, including uh, massacres, sexual violence, um, forced uh, uh, the deprivation of food sources from federal-controlled areas. A delib- and, uh, de- deliberate, deliberate use of uh, starvation as a, t- a way of taking over a country. Well, that's right, because Fretland was actually quite successful in that, in that very early time. They established, they managed to control a lot of the countryside. So the Indonesian tactic uh, was to deprive them of food in that area. Uh, and that, of course, was a tactic that ultimately cost uh, a very large number of Timorese their lives. And uh, the tactic to discredit this report was really interesting in itself. It really uh, talks about this is the bit that people should take into account too, that uh, uh, high high levels within the Australian government fell into a step to create this idea that it was hearsay evidence, therefore you couldn't... Uh, and uh, nobody could say that 100,000 people had been killed in this uh, invasion. Uh, That's right. Um, Some people say today that Australia turned a blind eye to the situation in East Timor. Having studied the matter for four years and gone through tens of thousands of Australian foreign affairs documents, I can say Australia did not turn a blind eye. It actively campaigned with the Sahata regime to cover the situation situation up and to allow the Indonesian government to continue its campaign against the Timorese people. Australia was complicit in actively supporting those actions. Um, The claim that it was hearsay, of course, was untrue. His informants were eyewitnesses. Now, that's the opposite of hearsay. That that is the sort of evidence that is accepted and given a very high value in court. Not only were they eyewitnesses, but they all indicated that they were prepared to talk to international inquiries and national inquiries, provided uh, that the safety of their uh, relatives could be um, secured, that they wouldn't have to give their names. They were prepared to do that. So uh, the claim that it was um, it was hearsay, which is the, the, the propaganda that came effectively out from the Australian government, was untrue. Uh, I should say Australia campaigned very... Um, actively to cover that, to try and suppress that the influence of that report. Um, Dunn travelled to various countries in Europe. He went to Britain, France, Sweden, Portugal, the Netherlands, and then to the United States. In all of those places, Australia cabled its embassies um, with instructions about how to discredit its report. Uh, they were to lobby those governments and tell them that the, uh, the claims were highly exaggerated, the death paid greatly overstated, and that the uh, and that uh, the report was based on hearsay, which wasn't true. Which allowed uh, them, one... which allowed them to uh, all those countries to feel comfortable in continuing to give aid to Indonesia, including military aid, which was used against the East Timorese. 
Indeed. One, one example was the Dutch at that time. The, the Dutch, of course, at that time were actually building uh, several corvettes for the Indonesian military. Now, the Dunn Report had a, a big impact in the Netherlands. Um, it, uh, several people in the Dutch Labour Party took it up, and they, they were in government at the time. Uh, the government was somewhat divided on it, but there was a push at one stage for by the Dutch for, uh, for an international investigation. Australian governments uh, did their best to talk them out of it, and it appears that they were successful because the, um, the Dutch government uh, abandoned that course of action and they cited evidence that they'd been given by the Australians in support of their decision. So Australia did act, act, act to prevent scrutiny of what was happening in East Timor during that period. But he continued, didn't he? Oh, yeah, he continued right throughout uh, the occupation to campaign on the team in what issue. Uh, he held a particular position uh, that gave him some advantages. He, he was the uh, chief um, uh, parliamentary researcher for the parliamentary library, which gave him independence. Um, he was very well respected as an academic there, and so it was difficult for the government uh, to to touch him. Although they did, they did try. Um, he, he he put out independent studies and reports about the situation in East Timor, and that allowed sympathetic uh, parliamentarians. And there were some on both sides of politics, I have to say, to take up the cause and to raise in Parliament what was happening there. He did pay a price, a price though, because. Um, there's one story that he told me um, in uh, February... Oh, no, sorry, it was April 1980. There was an attempt uh, by the Fraser government to remove him from his positions and to transfer him some, somewhere else. Uh, the Sahata regime, of course, put a lot of pressure on. They saw him uh, as a threat. Um, um, uh, diplomats in the Australian embassy, particularly Richard Woolcott, also put pressure on, saying that, that Dunn was... Uh, damaging the relationship. So they tried to remove him, but he had so much support w w uh, within Parliament that the situation was was actually raised in Parliament. And uh, Jim told me on one morning he came in and a bunch of parliamentarians and their staffers were there for him and they escorted him to his office. And so the Fraser government had to abandon its attempt to remove him from that position. And he was able to continue to use it to in, to research and advocate on the issue. It's fascinating the role that uh, Ambassador Wilcock uh, played. Uh, uh, it was quite interesting to read and quite uh, chilling to read that when they were combating the Dunn report in '77, they were saying things like they, there was a willingness to accept a certain level of human rights abuse as a price for the pacific pacification of East Timor. It's, yes, well, yeah. so that's what I, I wrote in in one of uh, I, I wrote in one of my articles that, that, it, that they uh, they accepted uh, they didn't officially make it policy, of course, and they wouldn't have said that in public. But in private, they they clearly accepted that the Indonesia uh, was suppressing Fretilin, and to some extent, they saw that as not only acceptable as a but as a good thing. They wanted they wanted the Timor issue over with, um, and they were prepared to see the uh, Indonesians do what it uh, uh, whatever it took to achieve that. Another um, argument was the rotten apples argument. There were a few rogue 
military, Indonesian military people responsible for any of these. They don't really mean to cause uh, major conflagrations in East Timor. It's just a few rogue bad apples. That was part of what I call the narrative of de- denial. I've uh, actually got a book on this matter coming out later in the year. Um, the Australian government had a, a number of methods by which it argued against um, uh, those who were supporting East Timor. And, and one was um, to argue that atrocities that had occurred had not been sanctioned by the Sahato regime and that were rogue me- members of the military. Now, that, of course, is completely untrue. Uh, the, it was a Indonesian campaign of encirclement and denial and annihilation. And That's incredible. And that that term, that strategy. term, use that term again, encirclement and annihilation. That's right. To encirclement <laughs> and annihilation of the Fertilin uh, forces in their area. But that, of course, didn't only mean the Fertilin forces. It meant depriving that area of food and using starvation as a weapon. So civilians were a target. It's really important, uh, this work that James Dunn did, and uh, he uh, gives. Uh, he actually was involved in the uh, final uh, phases of uh, East Timor, reaching it, their their status as the newest nation. Can you talk about that a bit? Well, that's right. He returned to East Timor um, during the independence vote in 1999. Uh, he remained during the, uh, a militia violence, and he he actually witnessed a certain amount of violence. He told me stories of how he was, they were in, in, uh, trapped in different houses and rooms when there was violence occurring around them. He was evacuated with other Australians in September. Um, but then he, re, uh, he returned um, uh, with the Interfet mission and he worked as an advisor to the UNTIAT UN mission. Um, Despite the Australian efforts to discredit him, he was widely regarded as an expert in the international community. And for that reason, he was commissioned as an expert on crimes against humanity in East Timor by the UN in 2001. So uh, he played an active role during that period as well. But he also uh, uh, worked with the East Timorese in uh, diplomatic training. Oh, that's right. One of the roles he played, um, uh, he... He, as an experienced diplomat, they had to establish uh, their own diplomatic corps and he helped uh, to train them. He, in, in the years leading up to uh, uh, the independence in 2003, he trained uh, many of the new nation's diplomatic diplomats. So he has very strong connections to East Timor. Um, I know that when I travel in East Timor myself, and uh, you mentioned Jim Dunn's name and he, he is uh, held in a very, very high regard. Yeah, uh, and uh, it's a sad loss, but a man who's done good work. It is a sad loss. Jim was 92. Um, I feel privileged in that he was very useful to my research and in the last uh, four to five years we've become very firm friends. So he, he will be a great loss, but he's had an incredible life. He's lived to the age of 92 and there are a few people who could say that they've achieved so much. Um, of course, he did pay a price for it. Uh, he, his career was stifled. He didn't go as far as he would have otherwise have, get, have been able to achieve um, within, for example, the Department of Foreign Affairs, where he became persona non grata. Um, 
he told me once that if he, he'd stuck around, he probably would have easily become an ambassador, and I think perhaps even higher. But, um, of course, the course he took, while it uh, probably wasn't as in economically successful, uh, was one of far greater uh, integrity and has left a far greater and more positive mark on the world. It's a bit of a uh, reflection on the path uh, away, uh, the path between uh, government and uh, economic interests, desires, and uh, 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 human um, uh, welfare. You know, like they, they, the paths diverge at certain clear points quite clearly. They certainly do, but they don't have to. Remember yeah, that's these right. policies that our government actively decided to implement. It did not have to take this path. Um, uh, as I said, I'm not just saying that. I've done a great deal of research. But there were, were alternatives available to it. The, the idea that Australia could have supported self-determination for the East Timorese people uh, is an entirely realistic course of action. Um, Having studied this matter in detail, I think if Australia had proactively supported that course of action, the Indonesians would not have intervened in this more in the way they did, uh, and history would have been very different. It's so in- he, yeah, yeah. It's, so it's interesting because uh, we're, uh, it's just been announced that the Indonesian uh, president is coming for a three-day stay in uh, Australia, and, of course, the shadow, uh, the elephant in the room, is West Papua. Indeed. There's a, a ongoing um, atrocities there that are, that are of a very long-standing nature and appear to be continuing as well. Yeah. So. Anyway, I, I should. Yeah. Right. So, so go on. I, I should say that James Dunn was not the only person within who came from the Department of Foreign Affairs who had a dissident view. There are other. There are some who wrote memorandums suggesting Australia took another course and advocating for it. However, the difference is, and that proves, of course, that the, that the other causes of action were possible. The difference of, uh, of it is, of course, that they were not prepared to stick their neck out. They'd write a memorandum, but they would not put their careers on the line uh, in support of it. Jim was prepared to do that, and that's what uh, made the difference. And I'll say, too, that it's a remarkable uh, insight into how a person who understands how the system works used all the levers that he could possibly use to uh, provide academic uh, rigour and uh, also uh, uh, his voice in public forums uh, that shows that these elements are terribly important in human rights advocacy. That's right, and he was very influential outside of Australia as well. Um, amongst other things, in uh, March 1977, he testified to U.S. Congress. Uh, that established the issue within the United States and led, and led a number of um, people within Congress to take it up. And it also drew it to the attention of solidarity activists, including Noam Chomsky, who was also very active on the issue. Yeah, it's, very, it's really interesting, his life and what he did. And uh, as I said, uh, Vale James Dunn, uh, we're, we were lucky to have him in the room. We certainly were. He was an amazing individual and I feel myself lucky to have become friends with him in recent years. Thanks for talking to us this morning. Thanks very much, Annie. Hello, I'm Duncan Graham and this is Over the Wall. Today, we discuss the industrial scene at Kmart and Coles with Josh Cullinan from the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union. 
In October, I spoke to Josh Cullinan, Secretary of the Retail and Fast Food Workers Union, or RAFWU, about their current industrial campaigns. In previous weeks, we have covered campaigns at McDonald's and Domino's. Today, we see what's up at Kmart and look ahead to this year's negotiations at Coles. In 2019, RAFWU spent much of the year lobbying to improve the lot of workers at Kmart in the upcoming new workplace agreement, focusing particularly on superannuation choice, rostering and wage rates. However, as Josh goes on to explain, the process came a cropper when the tribunal discovered that not all workers had been able to vote on the agreement. Kmart had an agreement that was voted on in November of 2018, Lots of workers voted for that agreement. It finally returned many of the conditions which had been stripped under old SDA agreements before. So workers stood to have substantial pay increases, but it still was below the minimum award. And so we ran our concerns on three very specific issues. One of them was that not having superannuation choice was a detriment. We didn't describe it as a massive or substantial detriment, but it was a detriment not having superannuation choice. The other one was that Kmart sought to expand the hours you could be working from on weekdays, for example, 7am to 11pm. They made it 6am to 12am. And again, we said that that was a detriment. We didn't try and quantify the value of that detriment, but it is a detriment. And that's, you know, in circumstances where lots of workers can't get their kids to before school care you know, before 7am, let alone, you know, at 5.50 or 5.45am in the morning. And similarly, late at night, it's very hard. And these are rosters that workers can be compelled to work, not just as a casual, but also as a part-timer. The company is able to roster them at those times if it has that span of hours. So these were detriments. And what the Fair Work Commission, in assessing all of that, agreed with us that those were detriments and also agreed that because the wage rate that was going to be paid was so low, it was a minuscule amount above the minimum award, that further undertakings would be required in relation to this. And so the wage rate that they want to pay is one or two cents above the minimum rate in the award. But all of that got swept away in the end because it became exposed at the end of the decision that was made that Kmart had actually not offered workers that were employed during the vote period a vote. So there were workers who were employed in the last two or three days of the vote that weren't given a vote because it was too hard. And the Fair Work Commission said, well, that means that the agreement wasn't made with employees who were employed at the time. It was made with some subset of them, but it wasn't made with employees who were employed at the time, and therefore it wasn't going to be approved. And that was a landmark decision. It was based off an earlier decision that I had been involved with, which was at Swinburne University, which found that casual workers that were employed during the access period and the vote period needed to be given a vote. And that if you included casual workers from a long time earlier, that might affect the vote outcome and they weren't entitled to a vote. And so at Swinburne, it was a matter of 30 or 40 votes. Here at Kmart, the vote was clearly in favour, but it was a different issue, and that is that there were casual workers who were excluded from the vote rather than were included. As with McDonald's, the denial of the vote on agreements to new employees, as well as the ability of ex-workers to vote, became an issue. Josh explains how that works and how the tribunal proceeds from there. 
Kmart and McDonald's and many of the others just don't care about casual workers. They've got very, very large casual workforces, 75, 85% of their workforces are casual workers. And they just don't care about ensuring that they're given the vote and the information relevant to the vote. So, for example, at McDonald's, in the vote period, McDonald's hired 1,251 workers and didn't give a single one of them a vote. At Kmart, it was a lot fewer workers, but they weren't given a vote in those last two days of the vote period. And so what the decision did was effectively franchise casual workers that were employed during those periods to be entitled to a vote. These companies don't care about casual workers, and the best way to show that is that at McDonald's, we had members that were no longer working for McDonald's who were given a vote who hadn't worked there for over a year. They apply a lens, which is just their simple corporate lens. They grab a group of workers, they give them a vote, and they just assume it'll vote up. They don't look at it and say, well, each worker here is entitled to a vote. But anyway, Kmart lost. Their agreement was not approved. And Kmart, the SDA, and the AWU have all appealed that decision. We're certainly fighting that appeal. We're not sure which way that will go. We think we've got some great arguments. We always do. But yeah, so that'll be heard in November the 4th, and we expect a decision fairly soon thereafter. Okay, that was in October. So what has happened since then? Well, Kmart won its appeal in mid-November, and the new agreement was ratified by the Fair Work Commission a few weeks later. The new agreement increases penalty rates and improves the right of casuals to become permanent, among other things. The new rates will also be backpaid to the middle of 2019. Next up, Josh took me through the situation at Coles. Coles' agreement expires at the end of April next year, in 2020. We've been steadily working with members at Coles, growing the union. We're now in hundreds of stores across Australia, and we've got a good network of delegates and activists. And the issues at Coles are numerous, and so we're active on everything from health and safety issues to proper payment of wages to uh, roster changes and to the conditions that were cut under the introduction of this new agreement. Our members have been champing at the bit for the opportunity to organise and start discussing bargaining claims for next year. So we're very excited to be working with them, developing a set of bargaining claims with our delegates to go to all of our members and get the input of all of our members and then look towards having a strong industrial campaign. We launched as a union almost three years ago and we've been doing a lot of great things and, you know, we've probably helped return about three quarters of a billion dollars in uh, penalty rates and other conditions each year through the various campaigns and actions. And whilst we've been active on the streets, this is the first opportunity that our members will be able to look towards an industrial campaign to secure fair conditions for members. You know, we think about the young workers working in workplaces like Coles and McDonald's and others, they're on junior rates, which by any other measure are poverty rates. They're wage rates which are literally below the poverty line in Australia. None of our members at any of these employers are earning a living wage. They're not earning 60% of the median average earnings. They're all on minimum wages or a few cents above. And so it's well and truly time that the members take direct action to not only restore conditions that have been stripped in the past, but you know obliterate poverty wages, be paid more than a living wage, not substantially less. And so members are excited about those industrial campaigns and getting them underway. Right. I'm guessing it's still way too early to know the company's proposed model, the SDA, what they're suggesting. That's all to come down the pipeline. 
It's a real question for us because the latest round of bargaining in retail and fast food has effectively been restore award conditions stripped. And that's where, you know, it's almost a billion dollars a year being returned now because of our campaigns. The next round of bargaining at all these employers is in the circumstances where they have been largely restored. There's some work to be done at Coles because there's been some increases since that need to be put in. But there's no longer a simple sales line for the SDA and Coles to workers that they're going to get 25% on a Saturday or 25% loading on a weeknight or penalty rates and overtime rates overnight. They've all been restored. So it's going to be interesting to see what the SDA and Coles will do to try and cut a deal. We expect that they will work very closely to quickly come to a deal to avoid our members taking uh, industrial activity in an industrial campaign. But workers are a lot more live now to the issues at play and to being told the truth. So if there is any quick, sharp deal done, we expect a, a strong vote no campaign will come from our members. And it's too early to tell exactly what they will be seeking as part of the bargaining process, but we certainly know it won't be what our members will accept. In coming weeks, we will talk to Josh about the Morrison government's attempts at industrial reform. We thank Josh for his time and expertise. That's right, you are, and you're listening to Solidarity Breakfast with Annie, and uh, we're going to go to a piece that was contributed by the wonderful Vivian Langford. Now, Vivian does the uh, community uh, zero emission show on uh, 3CR. It's on at 5pm on Mondays. This is a, a piece that she took outside the Magistrates' Court in Sydney, and it's uh, featuring David Shoebridge, who is a member of uh, the New South Wales uh, Parliament. And he was arrested uh, uh, under the move-on laws outside a climate demonstration uh, before Christmas uh, that was held outside Kirribilli House. And uh, this was the beginning of their... Uh, um, legal um, challenge and uh, it's a fascinating piece of uh, information that comes out of this. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions community show. My name is Vivian Langford and salut Babette. Today I'm taking you to hear about climate action in Sydney, protesting about the bushfires and the lack of government action. Uh, it's the Downing Centre is a court, and uh, David Shoebridge is a New South Wales uh, MP in our Parliament. And he and other adults were at Kirribilli House before Christmas when the Prime Minister was over in Hawaii on holiday, and they were protesting. The children, students, were protesting that our leaders were really missing in action in terms of emergency response to the bushfires. The riot squad was brought in, even though they were in a little cul-de-sac and not sounding like not disturbing the peace at all. And uh, David Shoebridge is on trial again today at the Downing Centre. 
here he is speaking about the ongoing reason for taking this to court. Uh, we're back in court again. Uh, about, about ten of us back in court again because the police have decided and the state government that directs them have decided that rather than deal with the climate crisis, they're going to try and arrest those activists who stand up and demand action. That's why we're here today, because that is exactly the wrong allocation of state resources. But I start by acknowledging the land we're on today, the land this court's on, and this court is a key place where Aboriginal injustice is perpetuated in New South Wales, but this land is Aboriginal land, uh, it's Gadigal land, and we pay our collective respects to those Elders past, present and emerging, and we're here because I think collectively we want to protect the planet. We want to deal with the, the, the terrible scourge of, of the of climate crisis that's largely been caused by a society that doesn't value nature, that doesn't understand how to live on this continent. And that's why I think it's important not just to respect First Nations peoples, but to acknowledge their wisdom and their guidance and, and to hopefully find a way to stand with them to cure um, our, our way of dealing with the planet and to deliver justice for First Nations peoples. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. But again, look, thank you for coming out today. Um, this is now the second time the police have dragged us to court. Uh, what was the crime? Well, the crime was a bunch of school kids standing in a cul-de-sac uh, outside the vacant house of the Prime Minister while the country was on fire and he was on holiday in Hawaii. And the crime was those school kids calling it out and standing on the road. If that's a crime, well then we should all collectively go to jail, I think. Because those kids were doing the right thing. Those kids were showing the political leadership that the Prime Minister has, has comprehensively failed to show, not just when he was on holiday in Hawaii, but since his return. And just today, we have heard that the Prime Minister and the Premier together have cooked up a plan to expand the gas industry in New South Wales and to continue indefinitely uh, the extraction of coal for the Mount Piper uh, uh, coal-fired power station. We are being governed by climate criminals and they're trying to put us into jail. So, so we have a number of speakers today. We will all be brief. Yes. Uh, we will all be brief, mainly because we've got to get into court by 9.30. But I'd like to first of all introduce and thank for showing solidarity from the New South Wales Council for Civil, Liber Civil Liberties, Michelle Falstein. Falstein. Thank you. Uh, yes, my name is Michelle Falstein and I'm the Secretary of the New South Wales Council for Civil Liberties. Um, now, we're here to give our support to David and the other protesters that were arrested uh, for uh, disobeying a police direction to move on. Uh, this overzealous and heavy-handed policing it, um, for, in this kind of incident um, has become symptomatic of the behaviour of the New South Wales Police Force. Um, such tactics are designed to intimidate and represent a significant breach of our constitutional implied right to freedom of political communication. And really, you know, not the average person doesn't have a lot of avenues to actually express their political opinions and exercise their democratic rights. And this is one of them. Um, now, Police Commissioner Nick, Mick Fuller recently stated that there should be a little bit of fear of law enforcement. Uh, 
the peaceful citizens of this state, particularly when exercising their constitutional rights, should not fear the police. Instead, the credibility of the police is undermined and the confidence and trust of the community that they serve is eroded. Now, we've all seen and heard about the 13-year-old girl that was left crying at this uh, demonstration here at Billy. I mean, that's really shocking. Uh, let's ensure that there is continued public debate and actions like this to bring about change in the policy of intimidation by New South Wales Police Force. Thank you. Yeah. One of those people who, when he saw the riot squad forming up in four rows deep and about six rows across, forming up like a paramilitary occupation force and then uh, deciding to, to intimidate, move in and break up those kids. Nick was one of those people who stood with the kids and stood between them and the riot squad and he did it for the planet. He did it because he's a decent human being and now he's been taken to court. Please welcome Nick. Uh, thank you, David. Thank you, everyone else. Um, your support is really um, it's empowering. So uh, it's it's pretty scary when you face court. Uh, not as scary as it was staring at all those police marching on children. Um, I can't believe the strength of the children that I was supporting. Uh, sometimes I think they were supporting me. Uh, they were giving me strength. They were giving us all strength. You guys here today are giving us strength. Um, it's pretty intimidating walking into the New South Wales courts uh, with the full force of the law about to be thrown at you. So um, really, thank you very much for your ongoing support. Um, we really need to stand up and fight for our right to protest, uh, our right to free speech. Thanks to the uh, Council of Civil Liberties for, for turning out and always being there. People have been quiet for too long and they're now starting to speak. People are finding their voice, young and old. And the only way we're going to continue to fight is if we continue to stand together, speak as one and speak truth to authority. And that's what those children were doing on that day. And they were children. And uh, I think that they wouldn't go so far without the support of all of us, but they're going to go far indeed, and that's because we'll stand right behind them, and I'll stand with them next time as well. So thank you for giving me strength. Climate action now! Climate action now! So let's all just have a big cheer for, for climate action now! Climate action now! Actual climate action, not what, not what the Prime Minister was talking about. We are talking about real climate action. We're talking about the just transition away from fossil fuels, not digging up more gas from the ground, not cutting down trees. That is not climate action. That is the status quo. That is doing the work of the fossil fuel industry. Climate action now means a just transition away from fossil fuels to renewable jobs, renewable energy, and that's what's going to power the future. It's going to be people-powered, not corporate power. So climate hey, action hey. now, climate justice now. Let's do it. Hey, 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 hey. I'm feeling stressed, I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling threatened by the government, I'm feeling let down by the police, who are, most of us think are there to protect us, not actually to intimidate school kids. So could we collectively give a, 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 a sort of round of applause and thanks to those other defendants. Hooray! Today. Um, today I think there may be one or two defendants who enter a guilty plea. Um, they're entering a guilty plea because this whole process is really intimidating. And they want it ended and they want it out of their lives. And I have nothing but respect for anybody who chooses to do that and just get away from the courts and the police. But the bulk of the defendants will be entering not guilty pleas today and continuing a not guilty plea. And that will mean that the police and um, our lawyers will find a date, probably in about a month or six weeks time, 
where we will have a fully contested hearing. And we will then see the police's evidence and see how they justify sending the riot squad in to intimidate and arrest 13-year-olds. Um, uh, if they can justify that, if they can prove it's lawful and reasonable, and they can prove we didn't comply, well then we'll all be pros successfully prosecuted. But I think, I, I, I have faith in the court system. I have faith that um, we will be able to identify the overreach of the police, but nobody can second guess or, or, or fully predict what will happen in a court system. So your continuing support gives us support. Your continuing gathering here shows the state government and the police they can't do this without cost. And I'll just finish with this. Since the Berejiklian government came in, they have cut the number of full-time firefighters that they employ. They've cut the number of full-time firefighters. Our state is on fire. They have expanded coal exports to a record new high. And Newcastle continues to be the largest coal export facility on the planet. And what has been their response to the growing opposition that we see amongst citizens to the lack of action on climate and to now what we're seeing, the, the impacts of climate change? Well, the Berejiklian government's primary response has been to recruit 2,500 additional police to police us, to monitor us. They've given them new powers, and these are new powers to break up protests that they've never had before, that they're trying out in this court. They've given them paramilitary uniforms, paramilitary powers, and assault rifles. And we either stand up and oppose that police state, stand up for the right to protest, stand up for the planet, if we don't stand up now, we risk losing it in the long term. So I thank you for your courage. I thank you for your commitment. We are in this to win it, to keep the coal in the ground, the gas in the ground, and the climate deniers out of parliament. And we will win this. Thanks very much. I asked David about progress in the New South Wales Parliament. There's an amendment which would mean courts would not be required to consider climate impacts of new projects like inflammable gas fields in forests or grasslands or extensions of coal mines. This is a really important thing because in New South Wales we've had two court cases where the courts decided that a coal mine at Bailong Valley and a, another one at Rocky Hill would not go ahead because of the impacts of the exported coal from those two mines. So this was really, we'd made a step forward and now the Parliament in New South Wales wants to amend that um, law so that the courts do not have to consider these climate impacts. This would be terrible if it went backwards and it looks like it might be voted that way. So here's David. The end of last year and thought they could rush it through. Um, it turned out that they that they managed their parliamentary business badly and they weren't in a position to deal with it last year. So now they're likely to bring it on in the first few sitting weeks when Parliament returns. It's a very dangerous law. Uh, currently, there's a state planning policy that requires a court to take into account the emissions from coal. And um, that's, been a, that's been an important factor in the refusal of a couple of coal mines, very rare refusal of a couple of coal mines in New South Wales. And the coal industry is very angry that the planning system has actually opposed a coal mine and actually refused a coal mine. They, of course, are extremely well connected with the Berejiklian government. Not only do they fund them, but they provide many of their staff and MPs with post-political post careers. Um, and so they've put pressure on the government to remove that requirement from the state planning policy. 
what that will mean is less rigorous review on climate change. That'll mean more coal mines being approved at exactly the time when I think society, in, in New South Wales at least, has realised that we are in a climate crisis and we need to take drastic action. Do you think the present fires will uh, change the, the mood in the parliament? I mean, is there more pressure on them to not make that amendment? Well, I think it'll change, it's undoubtedly changed the mood in the streets. Um, we're yet to see what the mood in the Parliament will be. I mean, the lower house returns next week, the upper house returns a fortnight after that. My sense of the matter is that many of those politicians are so rusted onto the fossil fuel and coal industry that they're going to pretend nothing has changed. They're going to pretend it's business as usual. Um, well, I mean, our job as Greens MPs, our job as, as climate activists, is to make sure that it's not business as usual. And if they make those dangerous political decisions... We hold them to account, we make them increasingly illegitimate and we throw them out of office. Imagine if students all across Australia started to call for their schools to declare a climate emergency. That's what some of the biggest names in the youth climate movement are now striving to achieve. Join the National Climate Emergency Summit for a student workshop facilitated by some of Australia's leading young strategists as they help students create a roadmap for getting schools to declare a climate emergency and advance serious action on climate. Friday the 14th of February at 2pm. Go to climateemergencysummit.org for more information. A 3CR supporter. This is Ari Lecker. You're here on 3CR 855 AM Community Radio. Also streaming on 3cr.org.au. Free West Papua, Papua Merdeka gets up one talks. Yes, you're on 3CR with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we're going to move to the world of art. We're going to the Sticky Institute's uh, annual festival of photocopies copy zine fair which is on this weekend 8th to the 9th of february starts at 12 each day it's at the meat market and uh, down in north melbourne and we're lucky enough to have in the studio one of the contributors of the at this event uh g'day cindy how are you Good, I'm happy to be here. Yeah, Cindy has come all the way from America and uh, you are a practitioner in the art of zine. Can you tell us a little bit about why you're a practitioner in the art of zine and what your main uh, themes are? Sure. I started writing zines um, in the early 90s. I'd been a an, an anarchist, an ecological um, activist for a number of years and um, had been involved in various campaigns for like to end nuclear power plants on native land and um, protesting like the Bush Wars in Iraq and things like that. Um, One of the things I really loved about the political movement at the time was there was like a lot of different anarchist groups and different ecological groups that all worked together on various campaigns. And there was also like really beautiful political art happening, like specifically with ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, which was just doing incredible, very intentional work, both artistically and um, politically on so many fronts. And um, so, but the anarchist movement I was part of was, it was super inspirational, but it was also like, there was a little bit of, you had to 
kind of know what your point was and, and debate it and, you know, really like stand strong. And I, I, I always was more curious and like, how do we come to ideas? Like, what are we struggling with? Like, what's sort of like our personal fears and, and complications behind the scenes? And so I found zines, um, sort of just saw them at the record store, or someone gave me one and, and I was like, Oh, here's a platform where I can do that. So my zines have always been kind of a combination of, of uh, autobiographical stories, but for the purpose of furthering conversation in a political realm. Um, so, for example, I'd talk about, like, the abuse in my family and how that informed, like, how I felt when I was in the street fighting and, um, and what, like, how do we deal with, like, trauma in political movements and also, like, how do we start to embrace joy more? Yeah, yeah, because it, it's it's art, isn't it? Um, mm-hmm. The beauty of uh, zines and using, and as this is called, the Festival of Photocopy zine, zines, is that uh, it almost goes back to that earlier nineteen-thirties uh, um, concept of uh, collage and dadaism uh, mm-hmm. uh, uh, that allows uh, images to uh, produce meaning in a way that, uh, and it's very hands-on, isn't it? Yeah, I like the hands-on aspect of it. And I think a lot of young people now are coming back to that, like really finding joy in the actual like cut and paste process of putting a zine together that combines the art and the words. Um, my zines have always been like a little more word heavy than than collage, but but creating something beautiful has always been part of it and creating something that people like, find pleasure in opening and turning the pages um, that there's like art and politics combined. Yeah. Do, do you start with a notion and then it uh, develops as you make the zine or do you have a clear plan? I typically like, <clears throat> I try to evoke like all kinds of emotions in each scene. So like I'll have a story that's kind of just like about wonder of the world. You know, I feel like one of the problems is that we, we are afraid of of curiosity and wonder. So I try to have some something that's sort of stream of consciousness like that. But then there's always one or two like issues that I'm trying personally to figure out. And so I spend a couple months like kind of writing about it, asking people around me what they think of those issues. And then um, and then eventually writing a couple articles like that. I mean, there's uh, because we're part of uh, a sort of an international culture. Uh, but there are particular uh, themes in your zines that touch uh, 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 the pulse of what's going on in America in relation to uh, uh, female uh, rights, uh, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, ownership of your own body and all those kind of things that are... Um, being encroached upon by uh, religious as well as uh, 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 legislative uh, uh, strictures. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my most recent scene, or not my most, but maybe my second to most recent scene was a series of interviews I did about masculinity, actually. And um, because I feel like one of the one of the problems with like some of the feminist movement is like, or at least earlier and I think it's becoming less of a problem now is that there was like this sort of disparagement of masculinity and now I'm pretty involved with a lot of um trans transgender and gender non-conforming kind of movement stuff um 
But I did this series of interviews with people of all genders about masculinity and and who were like masculine role models that they that they looked up to when they were kids or were influenced by when they were kids, even if they were problematic. Um, and then what sort of like, what did it mean to be a man growing up? And what was like positive or negative about that? And how did they overcome the negative aspects? And it was super interesting, because all the people that were um, born or identified as male were like, they were like, Oh, being a man, you know, the usual. And then they all had really different, um, super different things that like what it meant to be a man growing up. So that was super interesting. And then the most probably, aside from my personal zine Doris which is like the most widespread the second one is this one called learning good consent which um came out quite a while ago and has been translated into a number of languages but it's about trying to uplift the conversation and open ways for people to talk about what consent is um in intimate relationships and friendships and and um and also to you know a lot of people of all genders that I've known have been sexually assaulted. And I think like the abuse of, of men is very minimalized, like not not okay to talk about. So I, a number of people wrote from all genders about um, what their histories had been, and what they struggled with about giving consent in intimate relationships, having had histories of being abused as children, and, um, and just sort of what's needed around dealing with all that. And those the, the learning good consent and there's another one called support that's about supporting survivors of abuse and those two have been really really helpful for for communities around the world so so uh the zines create com- a, an ongoing conversation definitely yeah the learning good consent one um we it started out like a friend of mine and I made a list of like 80 questions And we gave it to everybody that was sort of in our weirdo community um, in North Carolina. So we gave it to like 60 people. And then we called a community meeting to talk about it. And it was totally transformational for our community. I mean, so many people talked about how they had never talked about these questions with their partners or their friends. And like, they were much more able to feel recognized and to stop harming each other. So it was really cool and it's been used as a workshop um there's like a an annual conference on the american mexico border and um it's been trans i had it translated into spanish and it's been used down there to sort of open up the conversation about sexual assault and and consent i think people might be surprised to realize uh how um how zines uh move into these kind of territories Uh, you do you think that it has a natural uh, ability because it's uh, one it's almost stream of consciousness with an intention but also that it's uh, a non-confronting art form I do think so you know with the when I first did it when I first started zines you know there wasn't the internet and it was very much a non-confrontational art form even when like some of the early riot girl zines were very confrontational in their languaging they were still like we handed them to each other at shows, you know, it was like a very personal, personal kind of interaction. And you traded them with friends and sort of like, pass them down like secrets, you know, like, ooh, read this. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and I feel like with the with the rise of the internet, some of that, you know, there were positive things about it that, you know, more people in in more isolated places had access. But there was 
with the online publishing, there's a very hostile um, world out there. And so I've seen younger people more recently really returning to this idea of, of the on-paper zines talking about really personal issues. Like I have a, there's a Jewish youth group, a LGBTQ Jewish youth group in the building I work. I'm a trauma therapist. And they, um, I live in the town where there was, in Pittsburgh, where there was a the mass shooting at the synagogue mm. a, a little over a year ago. Um, and so this, this Jewish youth group, they're, uh, you know, anti-occupation, like pro-Palestine Jewish, Jewish youth group are starting a zine. And they're like so fascinated by it. They're like, oh, it's we can talk about our, our personal and political issues and like open the conversations and expand the conversations, but in a place where there's not going to be like this attacking kind of, you know, internet world. Yeah, that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Are you going to be giving talks or what, what? you've come all this way. What's your intention about coming to this? I mean, this is growing. The Sticky Institute's been doing this festival of um, photocopy zine fair for a number of years now. And uh, now they've moved to the meat market, which is in North Melbourne. Uh, it's a bigger venue. It's a, a different kind of venue. And uh, it's obviously uh, attracting people from other countries. So why why are you here? I am so excited to be here. I mean, <laughs> when I heard about Sticky Institute years ago, I think they've been around for like 10 years. Yeah. Or this is the 10-year anniversary of the fair anyway. And um, we've always been, like, me and my friends have always been so fascinated. Like, oh, there's a zine store in the subways. Like, what's that? You know, like, just like extremely fascinated with Sticky Institute and that it's, you know, supported by the local government and is volunteer run. Um, and I just think it's such an important, important, it's always been important. And I think it's becoming increasingly important to have these kind of like volunteer run places where people can gather since there's so, so much a lack of like community space left in the world, or maybe it's better here, but it's terrible in America. Um, well, you got to fight for your space. Yeah, yeah. But how did I come here? I don't know. Luke invited me. Oh, isn't that nice? <laughs> so I'm really excited to be here, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's really good. Um, what am I doing? I gave a speech yesterday, and then I'll be tabling at the zine fair and talking to people about um, whatever they want to talk about. And then I'm doing a speech at 3 um, or question and answer and talk today at 3 at the meat market at the zine fair. Yeah. So if you want to be there at this wonderful hive of activity and you want to meet Cindy Crabb, then go down to the meat market in North Melbourne. It uh, starts at 12 and it goes for, um, oh, let's see. What does it actually tell me how long it goes for? It goes, I think it goes till six. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. So it's, a, it's actually a very exciting event that uh, you could go down there and enjoy yourself on this uh, fine weekend. Thanks for coming in, Cindy. Thank you so much for having me. Gecko is an independent, grassroots environment organisation based in East Gippsland that has campaigned to protect the remaining forests of the region since 1993. Coongra Survives is a film fundraiser with all funds raised going to Gecko to survey fire-affected areas for ongoing forest conservation. Goongra Survives, Cafe Gummo, 711 High Street, Thornbury, Sunday the 16th of February from 6pm. $10 unwaged, $15 waged and $20 solidarity. For more information, head to goongrasurvives.net, a 3CR supporter. 
get your copy of 3CR's magnificent book. It's a stunning history of the people, programs and issues at the station since 1976. On sale now for the amazing price of just $20. Pick one up at the station or jump online and place your order. Radical Radio, celebrating 40 years of 3CR. On sale now for $20. And you're back with Annie on Solidarity Breakfast and we've got Don Sutherland on the line. G'day, Don. How are you? G'day, Annie. How are you? And how, I hope all of your listeners are hail and hearty, despite the horrible start to the new year that we've had. Yeah, exactly. Terrible start of the new year. And it's sort of, in a way, one of the things that we're going to actually talk about, which is how the fires have actually affected workers. Uh, there's been quite an interesting array of things that have happened in relation to work relations uh, because of the fires. Uh, do you want to kick it off? Yes, well, um, I think there's no question that what's happened with these tragic and extreme bushfires out of season is that it has brought home to more and more people that climate change is real and it's caused by human activity, specifically the um, the use of fossil fuel energy systems that pump uh, heat into the atmosphere. So I'm very interested in, and, and, and there are so many different dimensions to it, and one of them is workers' rights, and I think that sort of subdivides into three interacting areas. One is, of course, jobs and the future of jobs um, arising from uh, climate change. And then secondly, of course, brought home in sharp relief is the whole area of workers' health. And then thirdly, what's happening, what could happen with uh, workers' uh, pay, uh, paying conditions. So those three are the big three areas if we're going to look at the impact of climate change and a-seasonal, out-of-season events like these extreme bushfires, also flooding, uh, and, of course, um, out-of-season extreme heat. Well, um, one of the first things that... Uh, I'll jump a little bit and we'll go to health. One of the things yes. that uh, was uh, brought up was the MUA took an extraordinary step. The Maritime Union of Australia took the extraordinary step in New South Wales to uh, uh, advise workers to go home because of the terrible smoke, and that's had some repercussions, hasn't it? Yes, it did. We were talking about this in early December, I think our last uh, discussion uh, towards the end of the last year, because ash was falling from, from bushfires, extreme bushfires that had started before the normal season, and they were, it was falling on the wharves. And the, uh, the workers themselves were extremely concerned, and their representatives, health and safety reps and uh, other types of union reps, encourage them to exercise their rights to cease work. And they were trying to do so under the provisions of the Workplace Health and Safety Act. Now, the company, the DP World, of course, was in a real dither about that. And to cut to, cut to the chase right now, there is now an interaction between the company's hatred of what the workers did to look after their health uh, then and how the company is handling... Uh, the current enterprise bargaining uh, arrangements where it has, unsurprisingly perhaps, successfully sought from the federal court an injunction from uh, the federal court that prevents workers to exercise their protected industrial action rights until early March. 
And uh, so, uh, and in addition, then in between that, the company put pressure on the workers prior to the injunction to uh, to come back from uh, their regular annual leave. And so there is this use of all sorts of threats and penal provisions against workers that are interacting with the workers' efforts to try and bring some control over their, the management of their health because of bushfire smoke. And as we know, uh, corporate interests are, mo- are mainly interested in profit. So, uh, oh, And it's been shown that uh, workers' health is supposedly supposed to be prioritised below the profit margin. Uh, and this is a, a clear example of this. But it also moves on to the fact that uh, the workers who are fighting the fires uh, are also being left high and dry because... Uh, the fires have been going on for so long and there is no proper uh, arrangements for the uh, sustaining of their personal income and their family supports. Yes, well, um, volunteer firefighters and other um, frontline volunteers um, face the prospect of not earning wages while they're volunteering for, you know, weeks on weeks on end. In, I mean, their their bravery and their skill is quite astounding, actually, in the circumstances, especially given the cutbacks to the uh, funding for the essential equipment they need that we've seen, particularly in New South Wales. Uh, and uh, I'll have to say that in a report that I uh, filed, uh, the uh, one of the fire unions have said that in New South Wales they actually need at least 400 more firefighters. Yeah, and and they're talking also about the shortfalls in funding for essential equipment as well. Yeah. That's exactly right. So, however, for volunteers, the we begin to see the sort of the profit motive or the protection, if you like, of um, of uh, the profit motive with the federal government's offer of a forty dollar disaster relief uh, payment to volunteers. Did you say forty dollars? $40 a day. Oh, my and, goodness. And that's led, of course, and I think... That's lunch uh, money, right? Yeah, well, it's it's disgraceful. The uh, it, it's quite, it is quite pathetic, and the it, it, that's led the Australian Council of Trade Unions coordinating uh, the uh, a whole group of unions who have members and potential members working on the front line as firefighters and in other roles holding a summit two or three days ago in Canberra. And one of the one of the proposals they're putting forward is that the government should ensure, one of the things the government should do is ensure that at the very minimum they are paid at the minimum wage for uh, up to 13 weeks. And that minute, that's approximately $700 a week. Now, uh, I should say also that that's not the only thing that the uh, that group of unions under the coordination of the ACT were putting forward, but on the pay front, that's what they're trying to do as far as volunteers are concerned. But there is also loss of pay for workers who are impacted by extreme heat uh, and bushfire smoke out of season and so on, uh, who uh, are stood down. So if um, and they may be stood down in the circumstances of the Fair Work Act, or not necessarily there, but in other ways, both 
the um, Fair Work Act and the Workplace Health and Safety Act enable workers to um, uh, workers to be able to, uh, or sorry, the, the Workplace Health and Safety Act enables workers to take initiatives to stop doing work in unsafe circumstances that are is a threat to their health. But the Fair Work Act enables employers to stand down workers in those situations and also gives the employers the right to not pay them in those circumstances. This is a, cl- it is- this is a classic case of uh, the common good and uh, uh, normal human uh, requirements in direct uh, 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 competition well, with the capitalist uh, framework. Well, the fundamental question is, of course, why should workers lose pay or their other entitlements like long service leave and annual leave for extreme circumstances that have occurred that is beyond their control? And one must... Yeah, yeah, why? Exactly. And also, it's quite clear that government policy has led... New South Wales and the rest of Australia into a, a state of environmental degradation. Yes, and uh, this this is that's a very important point because especially for the Commonwealth government as an employer, and the, and arguably other employers who are doing work that is in, that is dependent upon Commonwealth government contracts, but arguably. This is a situation that is directly under their control. In other words, the situation has been brought on because of government uh, government abilities to control decisions of action or inaction that has led to the extreme bushfires and the chain of causation between uh, the heating of the atmosphere and uh, the, the, the capacity of governments to bring that under control or not. Uh, through to the loss of pay. Now, so that is a que- so therefore that begs the question as to whether workers, especially those in the Commonwealth government employees, whether they, if they have been stood down without pay, that whether that was a legally enti- legal entitlement for the employer to do so. In other words, has there been a breach of the of either the Fair Work Act? Or even the Workplace Health and Safety Act, uh, if, uh, if given that the situation is very much under the control of the employer, and on top of that, on top of that, there are clear statutory provisions in the Workplace Health and Safety Act that provide multiple points of questioning by workers against not just the Commonwealth as an employer, but other major employers as to whether they have done everything in the Act to make sure that workers were as safe as possible as they could have been in these circumstances. And so it is just possible that those workers who have lost pay because they've been stood down have, even under the current inadequate legislation, have avenues of redress. And at, that is ter- at, we are in new territory here. And at the summit, the, at the uh, at the summit of of uh, unions uh, headed by the ACTU, were were they dealing mainly with practicalities on the ground, or uh, did but they did they discuss any of these broader issues? 
They discussed the well. They attempted to discuss the broader issues. They invited uh, Morrison and the deputy prime minister and other ministers to attend the summit and talk with them, but they refused to attend. So, although the government has met with business organisations to discuss how it should deal with the situation in the immediate and medium term, they have not. They refused to meet with this group of representatives of workers on the front line. Haven't got any time for the workers. My understanding is that that the summit itself did discuss uh, uh, with various politicians, but not from the government, uh, a broader range of issues. And they covered issues like uh, new health, uh, new uh, codes, health and safety codes to deal with heat and uh, bushfire smoke and so on, and went also into the area of, um, of uh, future jobs and so on as well. Although there is no public detail about that, to my knowledge. Another interesting thing that's come up during this period, of course, is the change of leadership of the Greens and Adam Bant's quite clear statements about the directions that they he... he the Greens are going to go in. That that was fascinating too. I, th- I think it is, and I think uh, what Bant is saying does uh, two things. It starts to specify uh, and pin down just what ought to be the content of a just transition. It only starts to do that. It doesn't go into very much detail except for one issue, which we can come back to. Um, uh, But it does start to specify what that might mean. I don't like the Green New Deal label that he's using. That's a very North American thing, and I don't think we should necessarily copy that, although conceptually it's on on the right track, and so, so it's here. The second reason why I think it's very interesting is because of the opportunity it opens up for uh, environmental and union activists who are members of the ALP to uh, put more flesh on what they might mean by a just transition and how democratic that just transition can be. Uh, and that and that applies, I might add, to those like me who are uh, not in the Greens or the ALP, and to the but to the left of them. And there are many people to the left of the ALP and left of the Greens who are members of those parties. All of us now have an opportunity to start to put more flesh on what a democratic just transition might mean, and how that. Uh, how the Green New Deal has been pushed forward by the new Greens leader uh, uh, might facilitate that. Do you think that uh, the uh, ideas that he's putting forward may have a a negative uh, effect on Labor Party membership? Well, regrettably, in both the Labor Party and the Greens, there are strong forces who regard uh, uh, the Greens or the Labor Party, depending on what, which one you're in, as being a bigger enemy than the Liberals when it comes to dealing with uh, just transition. And that is a really stupid st- 
strategic perspective from the point of view of the majority of the population. Well, you're not prepared to mince your words there, Don. No. It is actually it is actually very dumb for people in either the Labor Party or the Greens to define and practice their politics in such a way that the you know, the opposite party, if you like, or not the opposite party, but the other party is a bigger problem than the uh, the fossil fuel corporations and the government that facilitates their continued existence. There has to be a new a new synergy, a new pressure for an ongoing synergy between uh, Labor with the unit L A B O U R mm-hmm. and environmentalism. That in what we see, what one of the things that the bushfire, uh, uh, the bushfire tragedy has reminded us of, is that the environment is a part of the economy. It's integral to it. It's not a separate, parallel thing. And well, actually, so, it's bigger than the economy. Well, it is the economy. It's one of the It's one of the two sources for the production of our basic needs. Uh, food, clothing, food and water, clothing, shelter is our basic needs, and then you can add on very close to that means of communication, healthcare, etc. But it all starts in the synergy between human labour and the natural world. These two things are not separate and parallel, and so for there, therefore, for there to be a disruption actively practised by people in both the ALP and the Greens of this synergy is actually quite dumb from the point of view of the future of the majority. Can we go back to what you said about uh, the one issue that uh, Brandt has, uh, Brandt has uh, outlined that you were said we'd go back to? Well, one specific thing that I'm aware that he has uh, put forward in regard to jobs is a big expansion of uh, professional firefighters and other frontline emergency workers uh, uh, funded by a levy on the fossil fuel corporations. And that's the big specific thing. And on the surface of things, to me, that seems to be, in principle, uh, a, a uh, uh, a very practical proposal. And one reason for that, of course, is because it, the fires are going to get worse. And therefore, uh, there, there has to be a discussion. And I don't know what the answer is. I'm not expert enough to know the answer. Well, it's certainly not fuel reduction. Between volunteers about whether dependency on the volunteer system is going to be able to do the job in the future. Now, I don't know the answer to that question, but um, the, there needs to be at least to be a discussion about that. This, the, the second aspect of that specific element, the only one that I'm aware of that, that uh, Mr. Bant has raised, is it does begin to identify some of the principles that there are lots of new types of jobs in a democratic just transition. If I could just make a point about... Um, the, if you like, the environmentalist starting point to the Green New Deal. The Green New Deal ought to integrate into it 
the uh, not just new jobs, but the implications for workers' health. So if you take mining workers, coal miners, for example, the death rates for coal coal mining workers are escalated. There's something like 12 people dying in coal mining accidents every couple of years in central Queensland. Yeah, that's now, right. Now, environmentalists who want a Green New Deal must make that one of the central elements, how to, how to stop that, how to make sure that all coal mining workers during the process of transition can expect to go home from work, go home from work and meet up with their family and friends every day. That is that is how that is what the prospect of the Green New Deal. I think there is one aspect of that that I do have a question mark about. That says it is being brought forward as the government leading the way and directing the process of transition. Now, I don't think... I, I think I understand the point he's making because it's the opposite of, you know, what we've had under the Liberal National Party governments. But for it to be fully democratic, the role of the government must be to lead as a facilitator that unleashes the capacities of regional communities, starting in workplaces and so on, to direct what the content of a Green New Deal should be at a local level. And that's a crucial role for unions there uh, to be able to do that. So I have a question mark about that aspect of what uh, Bant is putting forward. Well, Don, you have to... Yeah, the final point. We haven't said anything about uh, the government's review of the Fair Work Act. Perhaps we can return to it next time. But the Fair Work Act review concludes the final submissions are expected to be received by the government on the 28th of February. And what we can bet on what we know so far, because this review is happening because the big employer organisations have wanted it, there is no intention and no sign at all that what the government will do with the Fair Work Act is enable workers to have more rights, especially in the context of extreme bushfire, the consequences of uh, climate change expressing it in extreme bushfire, flooding events, extreme heat, and so on. They do not intend that workers will have more rights to bring that under control. And that's why the annual wage review must be subjected to uh, really close scrutiny uh, alongside of, of course, it's, um, you know, it, the, it's almost an oxymoron, isn't it? The Ensuring Integrity Bill. I mean, this government wanting to introduce an Ensuring Integrity Bill. When it, I mean, yeah, I know. God, I mean... So there we go. A huge agenda and lots for us to talk about, uh, hopefully on a regular basis, with really good things being done by some unions to try and make the necessary steps forward in terms of their own priorities and so on. Thanks for talking to me this morning, Don. All the very best to everybody, and thanks, Annie. Bye for now. And that's the end of Solidarity Breakfast this morning. Uh, we, I'll just remind you that the Transition Film Festival a, uh, for, the, for a Better Future is starting February the 20th and going to March the 6th. 
have a look at uh, the program online, you'll find that there's some fascinating uh, films there, including uh, a film about uh, the uh, fight for uh, um, land in uh, Amazon, where they actually won a, uh, a court case relatively recently. A whole range of uh, different types of things on the program, but uh, absolutely fascinating for anybody with a political interest uh, for you to have a look at, including some films about uh, artificial intelligence. All right, we're going to go out with uh, a full uh, version or as much as we can play of uh, Paul Kelly's Sleep Australia Sleep and it's back. he's backed by the, uh, uh, what do they call themselves? The Choir of Hard Knocks, so it's a rousing anthem. I uh, got a new song. It's a, it's a lament in the form of a lullaby. I don't want to sing the song alone, and, and I had the idea to launch it with a choir. And what, what better choir to launch it with than pub choir? You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.